back to another special episode of Bad Gaze, a podcast about evil and complicated queers in history. I'm Ben Miller, a writer, researcher, and member of the board of Berlin's Schwules Museum. There's often something particular that happens when uh, any minority group is welcomed into a particular uh, artistic uh, or literary canon, um, and that is that the people who first make it into that canon, um, and in the case of gay literature, I'm talking about gay male writers, fantastic gay male writers like Andrew Halloran and Edmund White, um, take on a lot of the traditions of that canon and try to include in some way the position that they're writing from inside that way of writing. Um, you have, you know, the, the sort of formally exquisite uh, novels of Edmund White um, or Halloran or, or Alan Hollinghurst, for, for, that, for that matter. Um, the subject of today's episode is a very different kind of writer, um, not someone who was determined to take gay men and put them into the formal traditions of bourgeois literature not content to have the coming out and, as we'll joke about later, the sort of swimming beautiful boy in late afternoon replace the marriage plot of the standard English novel, but instead somebody who wanted to explode literature entirely um, to achieve some kind of anarchist writing in which extremely disturbing and transgressive ideas and ways of thinking end up helping us as readers to explore ways of being and ways of thinking that might make us enormously uncomfortable or challenge how we think and, and what we think. Dennis Cooper, the subject of today's episode, once wrote, when I started writing, I was a sick, teenaged fuck inside who partly thought I was the new Marquis de Sade, a body doomed to communicate with Satan, who was using my sickness as his home away from home. And there's your proof. Dennis Cooper is someone that we've admired on the show for a long time and have wanted to talk about on the show for a while. And to do so, uh, we're really excited to bring on a fantastic special guest. Please do note that this interview was recorded over Zoom, and please forgive any audio quality interruptions that may occur throughout. And so to um, answer some of these questions about Dennis Cooper, um, I'm happy to welcome our very special guest, Dermot Hester, who is a research fellow in English at Cambridge University and who has just written Wrong, a critical biography of Dennis Cooper. Well, thanks very much for having me, Ben. I'm, I'm a really big fan of the show. And, and uh, yeah, I mean, for me, um, who better to talk about as a bad gay than Dennis Cooper, right? I mean, the reason why um, it's called a critical, well, it's called a critical biography, right? Which distinguishes it, I think, on the one hand from uh, a regular biography where, you know, I'm kind of sick to death these regular biographies that uh, where, you know, the work is kind of, it, it's only important insofar as it illuminates um, a life. Um, it doesn't seem to have any kind of interest on its own. 
Uh, and then on the other hand, then you've got these you know, academic monographs where the life doesn't really seem to um, matter that much at all. So I hope that a critical biography kind of splits that difference and, and it does appeal to a, to a broader audience, you know. Um, and I think it has, you know, it, it's, it's kind of, it, it's, there have been a lot of people who have been interested in it from, you know, academics and fans and readers and, you know, general public, I suppose. Yeah, and it's, I mean, that, that, that is kind of the approach that, that we also try to take on the show, right, where the, this kind of life story is used to uh, illuminate something broader um, without being too deterministic or without, or without getting, um, with, without falling prey to this, to, to this sort of biographical convention where, yeah, as you say, the, the, the things that the person actually puts out or does or the ideas that they have are just kind of narrative devices to move you through this sort of plot from, from birth to death. Um, but to jump on that plot for a second, because it is, <laughs> it is a way to get started. Um, why don't we start by kind of going through Cooper's thankfully ongoing um, personal and kind of creative biography. Uh, maybe say a few words to listeners who may not be familiar with his work about uh, who he is and how you would describe him. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, as a thumbnail sketch, maybe you could say that Cooper's a, a Los Angeles writer. He's best known for his transgressive novels, transgressive queer novels that he wrote in the 1990s. Um, but that's really not um, the, the, the measure of him, really, the extent of the work that he's produced. I mean, he's been a, a poet, um, a, uh, an editor, novelist, obviously, but he was also a music journalist and, and a kind of a, a pop culture journalist for a while. I mean, if you, if you Google his interview with Courtney Love that he did for Spin, it's, 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 it's really awesome. And he did some really great interviews with the likes of Keanu Reeves and Leonardo DiCaprio as well, you know, just when, they're, when they were just taking off. So he really had his finger on the pulse um, uh, of, of that moment in the 1990s. Um, but, and of course, recently he's, he's a filmmaker. Um, but he started out, he was born in, in um, West Covina, which is a, uh, in Southern, Southern California in um, 1953. Um, his father, um, believe it or not, for somebody who becomes like a queer transgressive, um, his father had the ear of Richard Nixon and was like a buddy of Richard Nixon. And uh, <laughs> his, yeah, his father's name, name was Cliff. And he, he actually named, they actually named um, one of their sons after Richard Nixon. So one of Cooper's brothers named is Richard. Um, so as a result of those contacts, he, um, uh, his, his dad was pretty wealthy. And so the family itself was, was pretty wealthy, but he had quite an unhappy childhood, um, kind of rife with traumatic moments um, there's one incident that he recounts uh, when he was when he was 11. He was playing with one of his friends in, in the yard, and um, they were digging a hole, and his friend just hit him in the head with an axe, accidentally. And there's this moment when Cooper remembers like reaching up and like there was blood spurting everywhere, and he just kind of touched the wound, and he he realized he was touching his brain, you know. So. This is quite, you know, it's quite a, it's quite a, a vivid image, I think, to bring with you from your childhood. 
Um, you know, and then there were other incidents that he 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 kind of attributes um, importance to, um, like his mum uh, after his parents broke up, and uh, when he was thirteen, his par- his mum became you know an alcoholic, and was very threatening and abusive. Um, at one point, she piled all the kids into the car and. Um, and, and drove straight at a wall, you know, and threatened to kill herself. And, you know, and, and this kind of wore away at, at, at Cooper's um, uh, mental health, I think, for a long time. Um, and so, you know, you can see that like adults in his work are, are these really quite cruel and, and, and sometimes, um, you know, just indifferent, but generally they are, they are the, the kind of antagonists of his work, you know. Um, so he brings all of that through and, and, and writing was a way of kind of dealing with that traumatic, um, childhood. Um, and he found that it was a way to kind of, uh, lend a little, lend some kind of logic to the world, to, to this very, um, disrupted world that he was perceiving around him. Um, uh, and, you know, he came across the Marquis de Sade. Um, as one of his first kind of literary influences. So the way that that kind of world was constructed obviously had a very um, particular bent, let's say. So uh, he mm-hmm. read 120 Days of Sodom. And I think when he was 16, he decided he would like write a, a version of it using all of his um, like schoolmates <laughs> in the various roles of like libertines that were... Um, uh, violently murdering and 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 uh, yeah, <laughs> doing whatever they want to do. Yeah, there's a there's this Joyce Carol Oates quote that that stuck with me that you as a writer will always end up being whether you like it or not dominated by what you were reading when you were about sixteen. Um, and I think it's very true. And I also think it's particularly interesting given the extent to which, and we'll talk about this later, uh, that adolescence um, and especially male adolescence and especially the kind of disaffected um, male adolescence that, that seems to have been his uh, is so much one of his kind of ongoing um, artistic themes. Um, mm. The eroticization of that, of that, kind of disaffected adolescence or um, in a book like God Jr. It's kind of, I mean, the absence of the disaffected adolescent who has been murdered by the father. I mean, yeah, regardless of, 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 of its presence, it still has a, a kind of determining influence on his work, right? But it, it, that's a really interesting because, you know, one of the other writers that he finds at that time is, um, is Arthur Rambeau. Um, you know, the kind of bad boy of French symbolism, you know. Um, and so Saad and, and Rambeau, and Rambeau has obviously been, you know, idolized by numerous um, rock and roll musicians and punks in, in the years since. And it was this kind of like... And David Wonorovich, um, famously, the, the yes, of course. Face series. Mm, yeah, and Patti Smith, you know, with the go Rambeau, go Rambeau. And, and so... Yeah, you get this sense um, of, of of a kind of an adolescent fervor in 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 Arthur Rambeau's work, you know, and and in the book I refer to it as like a a poetics of adolescence, 
um, where you have lines rushing ahead, you know, these lines of his poetry that are half finished. Um, and and he's, he's so full of energy and moving on to things, but, you know, voracious in terms of his interests. Um, yeah, so, so those two influences, Marquis de Sade and, and Rambo, were, were hugely influential to Cooper, um, even when he was a teen. And do we know if he ever ends up completing any of this 100 Days of Sodom project? Or, or what is, is there a writerly output at this point? Um, if so, is it destroyed? You sort of hope for his sake that it was destroyed because, you know, no one's teenage writing. Well, I mean, Rambeau's own teenage writing is maybe one of the only exceptions uh, in terms of teenage writing that, <laughs> that, that, you know, deserves anything other than a, other than a furnace. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I mean, it did get the furnace, I'm afraid, yeah. Or maybe, um, I, maybe I'm referring only to my own teenage friend. <laughs> no, I mean, yeah. His, his, sort of functionally similar to acne, you know. Uh, yeah, his, his, his version of the 120 Days of Sodom was incinerated, yeah. It, he had it under his bed, I think, and he was, he at one point realized that his mom was going through his stuff, so he had to burn it pretty quickly. Um, but there's one page of it that remains actually, and, and it's, in a, it's in a collection called Idols. Um, and it, it's a poem called Mike Robarts. Um, and it's, uh, yeah, I mean, as a poem, uh, it's not its best, but it is kind of a, a, a real window into the world of, of, of 16 year old Dennis Cooper, if you're interested. Hmm. At this point, is this, is Cooper one of these writers who's always sort of knows that this is this is what he's going to be or this is what he's been sort of called to do or is he is he envisioning other futures for himself at this age? Has a very clear idea of uh, who they are and the idea of an artist and 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 work towards that at every possible opportunity. Um, I, I I mean I spoke to one of his friends, Amy Gersler, who's a, a an incredible poet who works in Los Angeles for the book, and and um, she remembered that um, you know when she met him, while he was still you know a teenager, um, she met him and he she recalled that he he took himself absolutely seriously as an artist, you know when when they were in college together. Um, so yeah, and and so. He had this kind of charisma, you know, and he, he always had this kind of uh, drive toward um, making himself an artist and, and, and a poet, I think, first and foremost. Um, and he took some writing classes at um, Pasadena City College and, and, and Pitzer College in California. But really, you know, he felt that these classes weren't um, weren't helping him to become the artist that he wanted to be. Um, so he ultimately quit. And, and um, there was this amazing moment in, in 1976 where his poetry teacher, Bert Myers, kind of throws him against the wall of um, Pitzer College in, in Pitzer College and says, you know, if you want to be a poet, just go and be a poet, right? Go and write. And, and Cooper did it, you know, and then he... Um, but, you know, punk was really, really important to him at the same time. And so what he wanted to do really was to combine uh, punk rock, which he, he, which he was into, um, and he had corresponded with Patti Smith as early as 1974. And this poetry, this tradition of poetry that he comes to um, through Arthur Rambeau. 
And uh, so in 1976, he, uh, he takes this tour of Europe and he's there on the 4th of July, 1976, when the Ramones played a roundhouse in London, which is this huge gig. Like it's this like a pivotal gig for punk rock in the UK. Um, there's everyone's there from the Susie and the Banshees to the Damned. Um, you know, the Ramones play another gig the next night and the Clash are there and the Sex Pistols. So it's this real kind of exciting time for punk rock. And Cooper's right there, you know, he's right in the middle of it. And then, you know, the next stop on that European tour is to Arthur Rambo's grave, right? Where he goes mm. on this pilgrimage to Arthur Rambo's grave. So those two things, you know, are so important to him. Um, and and he, he, you know, he works to kind of combine that in his poetry and his work when he gets back to, to Los Angeles in, in, in uh, 76. Yeah, it's, um, was that that July 4th, 17, uh, July 4th, 1976, 1976 gig, uh, was that date chosen intentionally to kind of uh, spoof or uh, counter the American Bicentennial? Because I kind of hope it was. I'm not sure. No, I think the I think the next night, July the fifth, there were um, bicentennial like celebrations. I think the Stranglers may have been uh, commissioned or may may have been on the bill for that like bicentennial gig. But um, I don't know. You probably have to ask John Savage or somebody, you know, some um, yeah. punk historian about the details of that. I also just wanted to point out briefly, um, in terms of maybe identifying some of some of Cooper's resistance to, to formal writing education, um, that this is a time in uh, this kind of post-war uh, United States GI Bill funded education, uh, where the discipline of creative writing as this kind of thing that you teach academically is created. Um, and there's a very specific model of, of, of what a writer is and, and what what good writing means and is and looks like um, that gets developed um, at not only at but also at you know, uh, certainly at places like the Iowa workshop, um, which is really at least seemingly to me counter to a lot of Cooper's own artistic goals. And I, I don't mean to intervene into this MFA or not debate in contemporary fiction writing, which I think is mostly pointless. But um, it certainly is something then where, where there was a real, a real set of prevailing standards of, of what quote unquote real American fiction and poetry was um, that someone like Cooper or people like the new narrative writers um, really make a lot more sense when you think of as being very self-consciously against. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, I think there's, um, it's really telling that moment where he, you know, switches Pitts or college and, and the kind of writing classes, um, he trades that in for uh, a, a writing community, which he and, and Gersler make at, at Beyond Baroque, which is this literary center. So instead of the kind of institutionalized formal creative writing classes that you could get in, in at Pitts or college, there are these uh, you know, groups of writers like Cooper and Gersler, but other people like uh, David Trinidad, Jack Skelly, Bob Flanagan, those people who are, you know, uh, it's an improvised, informal uh, group of people who come together to share work and, and to, to build up each other's work, really. And so that's that 
that's the kind of trade between the institutional, I guess, and, 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 the, and the community based uh, model of, of literary development, you know. So when he's in Europe at these gigs, um, is he writing at this point? Is he writing about them or is he is he kind of uh, soaking things up in order to in order to um, sort of develop further as an artist? What is his what is his creative output like at this time? Well, really, the I think the huge impact of Europe is legible in his editorial work. So he goes to the UK and he's, you know, um, knee deep in, in all these uh, punk zines, you know, and, and, and the kind of punk community of the UK, which is really kicking off at that point. So what he brings back from Europe and the UK in particular is, is a desire to create um, a zine um, and to create a community like he'd seen in, 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 in London. And he does that with a, a zine called Little Caesar, um, which he sets up um, with, with his fr friend, um, Jim Glazer. And what they do in that zine is they combine uh, poetry, but also like uh, photographs, gig reviews, um, uh, short stories, this, all this kind of stuff. And you get this really interesting intermingling of, 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 of work um, in the confines of a poetry journal, which is this kind of most, one of the most conservative kind of forms in many ways. But he was, you know, he was adopting the kind of the, the New York school's um, uh, tendency to use the, the poetry journal as a way to kind of bring community together. Um, but he was doing it in a very kind of punk fashion. And so if you, you know, I mean, you, you probably won't get a chance to read those those early Little Caesar issues because they're um, they're quite scarce now. But if you get a chance, I mean, you can just look through those contents pages, and it's just like a who's who of like punk poets and New York school poets and and rock writers. And there's a whole issue on like the factory scene, and so um, he's bringing in all of these influences and, and mixing it into this this really um, delicious broth. And it's funny to me, I mean, just as a, as a, as, I mean, as people living now, um, how difficult it is to even imagine subculture having a meeting like that, um, or, or, or maybe subculture even existing at all um, in that same way um, now, and, and, and the, the extent to which um, these cultural choices and the idea of something of, of, of editorial or artistic distinction um, being that critically important um, and, and being something that kind of consumed people's media attention um, away from um, or sort of outside of uh, what it was that you could that you could get paid to write or think about is just very different from now. And I think it's important to highlight that difference. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, I think it's, it's, it's that editorial position, um, which is really important, but he's also, you know, around the same time, he is the, the head of a reading series at that place beyond Baroque that I was telling you about, which is in, uh, which is in Venice in, in Los Angeles. And, um, 
as part of that reading series uh, organizer, you know, he he does what he's trying to do in the pages of Little Caesar, which is that he brings in poetry, but he also brings in punk. Uh, you know, the band X, uh, that punk band X was formed at Beyond Baroque, you know, during his time there. Um, but also he brings in which you wouldn't have been able to do in Little Caesar, I suppose, but a lot of this performance work that's that's really starting to kick off in Los Angeles at the time. I mentioned Bob Flanagan, who some of your listeners may know as, you know, super masochist Bob Flanagan, um, who was, a, was an incredible, who was also an incredible poet. And his career really started um, through Beyond Baroque, and you know he met his uh, his partner and, and and collaborator Cherie Rose there, um, but there were also a number of people who, you know, graduated from Cal Arts who were who didn't actually leave. Who were one of the kind of the first generation of Cal Arts artists and graduates that didn't leave Los Angeles for New York, and they actually stuck around. So you got the likes of Mike Kelly. Um, Paul McCarthy, uh, Raymond Pettibon, and, and they're all really influenced by punk and, and, and um, they're just hanging around uh, beyond Baroque and, and going to the literary scene there in the same way as the writers are going to um, the, con the contemporary um, Los Angeles uh, contemporary exhibitions or lace. So there's really in intermingling of performance art and poetry and punk. And it's a really, really exciting scene. And this is this is the scene that Cooper is finding himself in in his sort of mid late twenties as he uh, returns from these trips to Europe. And um, at some point, does he start writing more? Does his career kind of grow in the way that you might expect, where he starts being noticed and and writing more and more for more for more um, established places? Or or what does this kind of break look like out of um, this particular kind of rich subculture? Um, well. He uh, publishes uh, a lot of his work. Um, he self-publishes his work to begin with. Um, he had a couple of poetry collections called The Terror of Earrings and Tiger Beat. Um, and they're, they're published by Little Caesar Press, which of course he, he owns. Um, but he starts to make connections to a burgeoning like gay literature scene. Yeah, I mean, this is a moment um, when gay literature is, is, I mean, in the in the 1950s and 1960s, there's a gay consumer market for physique magazines, and there's a gay consumer market for for um, for porn magazines, but um, there's no, you know, magazine of, of quote unquote literature. Um, I mean, there have been a couple of novels, Other uh, Voices, Other Rooms by Capote in the 40s, uh, City in the Pillar, Gore Vidal, um, but but really not so very much. Um, and then, uh, yeah, post-Stonewall is part of this kind of gay liberation era, this, this um, Cambrian explosion of gay media all over the US. It's all of these newspapers and all these magazines and all these publishing houses, and they're all linked to one another. And, and um, there starts to be a, a real kind of push towards a more established gay fiction. Um, but what's interesting to me is that a lot of that work, and I'm thinking here about uh, works like uh, Andrew Holleran's Dancer from the Dance and this, its sort of uh, evil twin, Larry Kramer's Faggots, which are both about the same 
summer of 1978 between the same neighborhood in Manhattan and, and, and Fire Island and about the same disco fire, the same bathhouse fire rather, and the same disco openings and all of that, uh, which are books in which um, everyone is a kind of adult gay man who is struggling with coming out and struggling with the sort of legacies of, of repression and, and um, you know, coming out often features prominently and everyone is just impossibly wonderful and attractive. Um, even if, as Kramer writes about it, this is a scene that has a lot of sort of darkness in it and to it. Um, this to me seems to have absolutely nothing to do with the kind of world that, that Cooper is writing about or wants to be writing about. Yeah, I would agree. Um, uh, but at the same time, it's very interesting that he's published by um, Holleran's, um, let's say, peer colleague, uh, Felice Picano. So Felice Picano huh. is, um, you know, one of what was called the Violet Quill writers. Um, how how much kind of importance you put on on that group of writers, which seem to be, you know, just white middle class gays, is 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 uh, is another question. But when and when Picano puts out um, Idols which is one of, uh, one, which is one of Cooper's big poetry collection. Um, when it's put out with um, gay presses of New York, it's got this um, kind of buff, um, uh, yeah, buff Adonis type uh, uh, a character on the front cover. And, <laughs> you know, it's, I mean, you know, Cooper has, has always, his characters have always, his characters and his obsessions and the objects of his desire and his writing have always been, you know, slim, shy, retiring, kind of uh, long haired, um, uh, you know, kind of adolescent type bodies, you know. And, and so really Picano, Kind of twists the the narrative in some ways there, you know. Um, but it is it is interesting to think about the relationship between um, uh, Picano and Cooper because, you know, Picano then puts out uh, Safe, which is Cooper's novella. Uh, it's when he shifts to to prose writing. He really gives up poetry um, for for many years from from the point when he, he publishes Safe in 1984, and. Um, yeah um and and you know he really does resist the the aesthetic and the interests of of the people that you've talked about andrew holleran felice picano ed white um who's a a friend a friend of cooper's and who who wrote an introduction to one of his collections of poetry um yeah these were these were all the violet quill readers and there's an interesting review that cooper writes of the violet quill um compilation like anthology where he says that um, the Violet Quill is bullshit. And it's just representative of this kind of uh, homogenous gay lit that he, he has never really wanted to be part of. Right, because there's an extent to which wanting to be, I mean, wanting there to be a novel that, that does all of the sort of nice, good conventional novel things and yet is about gay people um, is, you know, it's just wanting to be part of a, a kind of a, a kind of bourgeois literary poetics that that uh, you know are very much up for and and important to critique. Um, 
it's interesting that he immediately goes and bites the hand that feeds. Is that is is there a reaction amongst these writers to his uh, to his denunciation of the violet quill, or or are they sort of do they see supporting him as as um, as some kind of duty, as in like we the community have to lift up all of our talented writers, even this little pipsqueak, or um, how does that kind of go down? I mean, I don't know. I don't know if it's immediate. I mean, he's he's published by Picano in the early eighties, and then it's it's not until ninety four when he you know kind of reacts in that way. And I think you, you know, I think it's worth um, remembering that the early eighties is very different from the early nineties. You know, and in in the nineties, by the early nineties, you see a kind of a a, a, a newfound coherency to the idea of gay lit, right? Um, uh, I mean, th that is a reaction, I think, to the AIDS crisis where um, the, the community kind of uh, coheres and, and, and there is a certain very distinct vision of what constitutes, you know, gay writing. And Cooper has always been pushing back against that so while the early 80s would, been, would have been a lot more accepting of, uh, you know, a, a lot more uh, Catholic, let's say, in terms of its tastes, a lot more um, of a broad church, um, by the early 90s, you, you get a, more, a lot more homogeneity. But also Cooper is a lot more arrogant at that point, you know, not, well, maybe not arrogant, arrogant might be the wrong word, but he's been published by Grove Press, you know, by that point. So he's got like this cool transgressive um, publisher behind him. Mm. Um, that published Burroughs and, and Kathy Acker. And so he doesn't need the gay presses anymore. And so he can kind of afford to rubbish them. Right. And, you know, there's that, you know, you, <clears throat> with when, uh, you know, uh, endless coming out narratives and, you know, there's always a boy swimming, isn't there? Um, but when something like that is kind of one of many literary options that are being presented in the context of this explicitly liberatory politics, it sounds kind of all, it's all kind of dandy. Um, and that's very different from a, a post-AIDS moment in which what, what Benjamin Shepard once called the, the assimilationist split is beginning to occur. And, and that work suddenly, um, and I think it's, I think this is actually, I mean, there are a lot of young kind of gay radicals I know who really don't like Edmund White for this reason. And I resisted Edmund White for a long time for this reason, um, wrongly, because Edmund White is, a, is, a, is an extraordinary writer and everyone should go read him. Um, but um, that I associated it with this kind of triste, um, uh, mealy-mouthed, um, ashamed of itself, um, you know, uh, just sort of trying to, like desperately trying to be thought of as good and classy, um, kind of, kind of gay lit. Um, you know, if, if, if that's one of the strands of gay lit that we all love to hate, and the other one is, you know, um, Ronaldo shoved me up against the wall, and then we, you know, with the, the, with the half-naked guy on the cover, although uh, that's probably gone the way of the gay bookshop, unfortunately. Someday someone will We'll have something to write about those, you know, god awful '90s pulp novels. Um, so, how does Cooper get himself signed to Grove Press? Is this when Safe comes out? Is this '89 or or what? Um, around '89 or, or or what? What's going on there? Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, in 1989, he he gets published by Grove, but it's actually for a book called Closer. Um, and so, Closer is um, the first book in what would become known as the George Miles cycle. Um, 
And so the first book is published in 1989. There are five of them, um, all with one word titles, Closer, uh, Frisk, Try, Guide, and Period, which comes out in, in the year 2000. So really that's, this is a series that, that is published over the course of more than a decade, but really Cooper has been working on it you know, for much, much longer than that. Um, he started working on it, in fact, when he, um, when he met a, a friend of his um, named George Miles when he was in high school. So, so Cooper was 15 and George Miles was 12. Um, and yeah, he was this, uh, he was this incredible, cute, you know, um, uh, crazy kid um, uh, who seems to have developed kind of bipolar disorder uh, at some point. Um, and Cooper was just, a, yeah, well, one of a really, really good friend of his, just really loved him. And um, they, uh, they, they became lovers um, later on uh, when Cooper was in, in college. And, and this was a really kind of pivotal moment, um, meeting George Miles and, and being friends with him in the same way as, you know, Dante's Beatrice, right? He was like the muse and he will, uh, you know, he's always going to be, Cooper said, you know, he's always going to write about George Miles. Um, and he was this kind of incredible tragic figure. Um, he, uh, as I say, you know, Cooper and himself uh, were really good friends when they were in high school and then they uh, became lovers at one point and then they kind of drifted apart, fell out of contact when Cooper moved to uh, Amsterdam. And, but when Cooper comes back from Amsterdam, he tries to get back in touch with him and he, you know, he can't, he can't find him. So he writes this cycle, this series of books um, in tribute to his to his friend and kind of miles appears as these kind of frail tragic beautiful um, boys um, in 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 across the series um, and but miles actually killed himself in in 1997 and cooper doesn't actually find this out until on uh, sorry no miles killed himself in 1987 um, and so he killed himself even before the cycle had even started. Um, but Cooper didn't, didn't realize that until after the fourth book was published, which makes the last book period, this, this, this incredibly haunting, uh, grief ridden, um, skeletal kind of work. Um, yeah, so, so that's, that's the kind of series of books that he's most well known for. It's, uh, it deals with like high school students. It's got sex and death and drugs and heavy metal. And so um, this is why it was super, super transgressive. I mean, you know, you just add video games in there, you know, and the conservative right's just going to go apeshit, right? But um, yeah, so that, that is his kind of, uh, it's his masterpiece and, and, and really it, it is, it is a remarkable work. And I think the idea that somebody like him was able to, to write this series over the course of a decade, um, and, and it's so coherent and it's so um, deep in terms of its themes and, and formally and so on. I think that's testament to, I mean, his vision, of course, but it's testament also to the um, incredible relationship that he had with Grove Press, which allowed him to do that. And do you want to, I mean, before we talk about the 
reaction to this work. Um, maybe it would be interesting to hear about how you contextualize it in a in a critical sense. Uh, so focusing on the critical part of critical biographies, we've been we've been heavy on biography so far. Um, other than these kinds of formative experiences in the in punk and metal scenes in LA, um, what is the what is the writing of these books like? Where where are they coming from, and and how would you put them in conversation? Well, I mean, I think what's most interesting to me is. Uh, was when I went into the archive, uh, Cooper's archive, which is at NYU. And it's part of um, the downtown collection of archives. Um, Cooper obviously is not from New York, um, but he seems to be, his archives are grouped together with these downtown New York archives, which include the likes of uh, Richard Hell and Gary Indiana. Um, because of, of the influence that he was drawing from New York. And, and uh, I mean, he spent a couple of years in New York, but his, his work was very oriented towards a New York aesthetic. Um, and so my interest in the George Miles cycle was really came out of the work that I found there in the archive where Cooper develops all of these diagrams um, very early on in terms of a, a, and that allows him to develop a structure for the, the, the cycle as a whole. So he's, even before he's, you know, published the first book, he's thinking about um, this huge work of art that would be a monument to, to George Miles, but that would also incorporate so much of this, the, the stuff that he was interested in. You know, you mentioned punk and, 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 and poetry and these things. But, you know, the, the nouveau roman, like, uh, you know, Alain Rob Grier, you know, he came across them, uh, a lot of the um, nouveau roman when he was uh, in Amsterdam. He's also drawing on uh, Joy Division. Um, he's, he's drawing on like Jesus and Mary chain, uh, visual art. And, and so he's combining all of these things. And uh, using diagrams to, to think about how he's going to position characters in the novel and, and, and how it plays out. And the, the, the critical, you know, you, you mentioned that this is a critical biography. So my critical take on that is that, well, ultimately Cooper is, a, is an anarchist and he's kind of claimed uh, an affiliation with anarchism for, for a very long time. So I was kind of thinking, well, what is what is it about these diagrams? How, if you are an anarchist, can you commit to uh, a very diagrammatic um, idea of art? Uh, you know, I, I suppose, you know, a layperson might think of like an anarchist art might be one without constraint, right? The one that would kind of give vent to uh, a kind of a creative impulse that wasn't controlled or coerced in that kind of way. Um, so I, I, that was a real problematic for me. And I wanted to kind of think about, well, what is it to, to work in this kind of very procedural way where the placement of characters and the development of scenes and all this kind of stuff is incredibly well planned out in terms of you know, concentric circles and reflections and refraction and all this kind of stuff, which drove me back to um, procedural poetics of the likes of John Cage and Jackson MacLow and these avant-garde uh, poets, um, some of whom are gay, by the way, but are, are working in an anarchist mode. And, and 
they have this, they develop this kind of anarchist procedural poetics that I put in conversation with, uh, with Cooper's work. That's interesting that you talk about um, an anarchist art that that sort of emphasizes its own that sort of emphasizes this particular kind of stylistic constraint. Um, I'm wondering if you have thought about Cooper um, in conversation with some of the early 20th century German anarchist masculinist gays. Um, I think think particularly of a of a guy named John Henry McKay, um, who shares Cooper's um, interest in adolescence, um, and I say their adolescence is in the state of being, not adolescents as in the people. Although we'll get to that later, I'm sure. Um, and also some of these anarchist um, political convictions. Um, is Cooper thinking of himself as being part of this kind of lineage of, of um, anarchist gays, or is this is this kind of a, I mean, I certainly he's thinking of himself as an anarchist, but is he thinking of himself in this kind of lineage, or is this someplace you're placing him, or, or am I just sort of making wild connections here that, that don't really connect to how he or you think about him? Well, I mean, I, I, I haven't made that connection, but I, I think it, it could easily be done, and I'm not sure from my research, I'm not sure that, that Cooper engages with it, but um, really, his his the way he comes to anarchism is through is through punk and through a kind of queer punk movement in particular called uh, called queercore or homocore. Um, we can talk about that in, in a little bit if you like. Um, and so that's his real experience of it. You know, he also reads Emma Goldman. I mean, in the, in the book, I also um, try to think about him in relation to uh, this a bisexual anarchist, American anarchist intellectual named Paul Goodman. Um, and uh, Paul Goodman could easily go for the title of bad gay as well. You know, I mean, he's he's a very he was a very well known um, intellectual during his during his era. Um, but once he died, he seemed to kind of fade very quickly from view. But, you know, there are people like um, Frank O'Hara is, 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 is very influenced by him, um, as is, you know, Jack Spicer and, and this kind of underground um, gay poetry community, right? Cross, cross-continental poetry community in San Francisco and, and New York. Um, and what I try to do is, is to tease out how Goodman's ideas um, and, and his idea, in what his principal ideas, is that in, in the aftermath of the Second World War, to reduce the, the feelings of alienation and disconnection and trauma that, that persisted after the Second World War, the key thing to do was to create small communities of, uh, and in where arts, where arts are concerned, small literary um, or artistic communities and to you know if you're a poet you write about your friends and you know that was really taken up by the likes of frank o'hara and the new york school who name check each other all the time um and what i try to do yeah is is to make the connection between goodman's you know explicitly anarchist po uh, point of view 
And as it trickles down through Frank O'Hara into Cooper's work. So there's not a direct connection, but I like the idea that there's a kind of an inheritance there that is, that is, that is under the surface of his work. Does that make sense? It absolutely does. Um, it, it certainly does. Um, there's another uh, kind of big uh, piece of Cooper's work that I'd like to talk about more specifically before we get into a, a more general conversation about um, some of how Cooper's work has been received and then um, hopefully into, into what he's up to now. But, uh, and that's the, the novel, The Sluts, um, which is from, I believe, the early 2000s and which, uh, if the Miles cycle wasn't already turned up to 11, um, I mean, maybe The Sluts turns it up to about 13 or something. It's the it's a book that single-handedly uh, forced my uh, best ever writing teacher to change the way that she wrote her syllabus after a great deal of student protest. Uh, but it's a book that I um, have have always had a, a, a lot of awe for. Um, it's an incredibly put together and, and deeply disturbing thing, but why don't you introduce it and, and talk more about it? Sure, yeah, well, so The Sluts is, um, I, I, I think it's one of, I think it's Cooper's most popular book. Um, it's certainly one of his most criti critically acclaimed. Um, it won the, the, the Lambda Literary Award for Gay Fiction in 2006 and, and, and various other awards. Um, it is what we used to call uh, a cyber noir, if that is not too much of an <laughs> archaic term. But, um, I love that, a cyber noir. I'm imagining like Keanu Reeves and Cameron Diaz and in, you know, early aughts haircuts and trench coats advancing um, through lasers. Oh, that'll do it. Yeah, absolutely. With just a, a smidgen of um, Johnny Lee Miller, right, in Hackers. Oh, for sure. Um, so anyway, this yeah. So it's it's this um, it's a mystery really that's set on uh, on the internet, and it, the, the book itself takes the form of various reviews, um, like websites that that where you can review escorts, um, and so it begins with a review of an escort named Brad. And, you know, you've got his details there, you know, his height, his hair color, his thick size, you know, whether he's cut or uncut, whatever. And, you know, a description of his performance, right? And then the next review is, is another review of Brad, but, but the details have started to kind of change and move around, you know? And um, you get various reviews after that and, and the, the figure of Brad kind of morphs and you're not quite sure if you're, if the Brad that people are talking about is the same one. So somewhere in the middle of these reviews, um, Brad dies, Brad is murdered. And so you're not quite sure if it's the original Brad or if it's a new Brad. Um, but then the, the book moves on and this Brad mystery starts to, to kind of take control of, of, of a community of reviewers, you know, and they want to know more about who this Brad was. And um, you as a reader, you are you are just as kind of culpable or just as interested as as, as this group of people are. Um, but then the mystery starts to bleed into them and they, their avatars are suddenly um, under question, you know, and one, you know, one commenter, commenter could be another, could be the murderer. 
um, and you know it all winds up um, in typically pathetic fashion, um, as is the uh, you know the usual um, mode of Cooper's work. But yeah, it, I'm sure your teacher would have um, had some um, complaints, perhaps about some of the the scenes depicted because. Yeah, these commenters who are uh, infatuated with the Brad thread, they're like, I don't know, the, the worst kind of fanfic um, uh, community, right? So they develop these incredibly uh, violent and sexually violent fantasies about what they would do to Brad were they ever uh, in the same room as him. And they claim to be, you know, at various points. So it's never clear, you know, who Brad is, whether he ever existed. Um, but what's very, very clear is that when you get a bunch of um, people on the internet and you divorce them from reality, uh, it creates an incredibly um, uh, toxic blend. And I think that's why the sluts feels very, um, continues to be very relevant uh, in, in the modern world. I mean, I taught it uh, in my contemporary lit class last year and, and you know, I, I was a little concerned initially, you know, that I would have the same complaints that your teacher had. But and there, there were a couple of people who said, you know, I stopped reading at page 72 because uh, I was just disgusted. But they were also they they found that this was um, just an incredible work of of of, of literature. Like, and, and also they, they pulled out the kind of punk threads quicker than I could, you know, the, this kind of real abrasive relationship the book has to establishment, to the establishment of to the literary establishment. Um, yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit more about um, the structure that you just laid out to me um, in and kind of putting that structure in conversation with um, what you were saying about the Miles cycle in terms of this kind of anarchist art that's nonetheless incredibly kind of um, not rigid, uh, but but very um, formally intentional, maybe is a, is a good way of, of putting what I'm what I'm trying to say. Uh, sure, yeah. Um, well, the slots relationship to the George Miles cycle is uh, is direct. Um, at one point, it was uh, going to be one of the books in, 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 in the cycle. Um, but Cooper went on a different direction and it didn't quite work. And, um, and so, uh, yeah, he, he, he developed it as, as kind of one of, as the first post cycle uh, or one of the first post cycle uh, books. Um, I think in regards to, to what you've mentioned, I think about the sluts as, as kind of a, as, the obverse to the cycle, right? So the cycle is this is quite interested in um, the center, uh, the center of things, and and the center is is usually this 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 George Miles character, right? And and there are a lot of things that are oriented towards the center and, and trying to discover what the center would be, um, and and obsessed with it. But in the sluts, you have the center, which which it doesn't, there is none. There's like a, it's like, there's nothing at the, at the heart of the sluts. So you have, then your attention is drawn to the things that are orbiting the center. Um, that is to say the community and the relationships between individuals and, 
and and what is um, you know what was in, in two thousand and five um, a kind of a network aesthetics, right? And so there's, there are really interesting ideas around the network. Um, it, you know, particularly at the beginning of well, let's say when when Web 2.0 was a new thing, right? Where a lot of people kind of felt that it was a really revolutionary kind of idea that you, instead of like having the internet as this kind of broadcast medium, you had it as like an engagement medium. And so there were a lot of ideas floating around in 2005 when he was or you know, earlier than that, say 2002, when he was kind of writing the book. And so he was very interested in drawing in the idea of a network and thinking about the community and internet communities in relation to the idea of a network and, and, and what that might mean. Right. Um, that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, I'm interested to ask a bit about, a. Um, it's interesting to me that this book won the uh, Lambda Literary Award um, in 2005, because when I think about, and I mean, Lambda Literary is a wonderful organization. I'm not trying to, trying to, to, um, to dismiss them in any way, um, but this is a book which is about some of the most I mean, if you're thinking about, um, you know, the legacy of, of the Violet Quill, right? Um, and this kind of way of being, this way of doing gay literature that's very much about presenting uh, an attractive, um, presenting something uh, attractive uh, to people. Um, this is about as unattractive um, as it gets, right? In terms of what we're supposed to show the straights and what we're not supposed to show the straights. Um, you could also imagine um, the book being treated as or responded to as, and I'm curious if people did respond to it this way, uh, as a kind of torture porn, right? In which the degradation of this um, young near adolescent figure is presented for the consumption of this audience. Um, and I, you know, I, I don't know that I think that that's Necessarily, how I would understand it, um, but but that seems to me like a like a critique that might come forward, and I'm wondering if that is something that that did, or or if you could talk a little bit about kind of the reception history of of the book in that way. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it, it is interesting because um, I think in that uh, you know the, the review of of the Violet Quill reader that I, I spoke about previously, you know, Cooper really trashes Lambda. Um, you know, for for its endorsement of a particular form of gay literature, right? Um, but you know, again, in the same way as you know, the early '80s is not the early '90s when he writes that review. The early 2000s is not the early '90s, right? So things have moved along quite a bit, and I, and I think there's a recognition. There was a recognition there of just how just how much Cooper had his had his finger on the pulse and. Um, you know, he, he was drawing his inspiration for that book from um, gay escort websites, you know, they were, he was, they were his, they were his research for that book, you know, so he, he was really um, kind of offering an, an oblique, I mean, maybe in a, a refraction of gay culture at that time. Um, and offering, um, you know, the, the gay consumer, the gay writer, the gay, the gay reading public, um, uh, that that very kind of that oblique vision of 
and a kind of macabre vision of what um, their, you know, culture might be like at some point. You know, um, is it is it is it related to torture porn? I don't think so. I mean, I think that the thing about torture porn is that it doesn't at any point indict you as a reader for enjoying it. You know, in some ways, it it it, it seems to revel in the idea that you are. Um, you're getting a kick out of it, but but there are numerous points in the sluts where you're kind of at, you're kind of called upon to reflect on what you what your investment is. You know, um, you know, I'm not going to give give the end away to your readers, but there is a sense in which you are you're kind of asked like, what have you been reading this for? You know, what, what is your investment here? You know, and and why do you want to see? Um, why, if you've read all the way to the end, um, how how can you square that with your ethical standpoint? Right, and and that that challenge is important. Um, I think that right that that it is be it it is a challenge, um, and in a in a, a potentially productive way. And that gets into, I think, one of the sort of twinned reason why, why Cooper is a, is a bad gay, right? On the one hand, there's a possible response to his works that's deeply homophobic. And on the other hand, there's that kind of uh, queer nation uh, response in which he is seen to be a bad kind of gay. I mean, if I'm not mistaken, at one point a Dennis Cooper reading in the mid nineties, queer nation activists show up uh, and start chanting, Dennis Cooper must die, must die, must die. Uh, there's, um, there's this, um, element of desire for the adolescent uh, in Cooper's works um, that's uh, really disturbing and, and troubling to a lot of people. There's this kind of eroticized anarchism. There's a kind of potentially what some might see as a kind of gleeful transgression of all of these boundaries. And, and you know, it, it, it generates um, it generates many different responses, if I'm not mistaken. Maybe could you could you talk about uh, some of those responses and um, how you understand Cooper's work in, in in relation to them? Sure. Yeah. I mean, well, I, I think one of the recurring themes of our conversation has been that you know Cooper is uh, is a, is a queer punk, right? Uh, he's an anarchist, um, so you know it's not terribly surprising that. Um, he would find, you know, the main, mainstream of gay literature, culture, politics to be um, to be constrictive, or um, and, and certainly not want to locate himself anywhere near it. You know, um, yeah. The the, uh, the I mean, yeah. A representative example of this is like in 1980. Eight, um, he and his friend Richard Hawkins, um, they put on a group show called Against Nature, um, uh, work by homosexual men, which um, which is uh, which really doesn't toe the line in terms of like a a, a positive representation of uh, of gay men. Um, and you've got you've got a number of really really interesting uh, artists in there, including the likes of like Nail and Blake, and people that are really challenging um, a homogenous idea of of what uh, a gay male identity is. Um, but you know, this is in 1988, and and it's when 
um, you know, Douglas Crimp, for instance, is 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 really calling for uh, an a, a, an AIDS aesthetic that would be politicized and that would have a kind of purchase um, on 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 America, right, and on the response to the AIDS crisis. So the idea that you've got these troublemakers um, uh, creating a dissenting view about what gay uh, gay men are um, is 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 quite um, abhorrent or it's, it's um, yeah. And I think they, they, they got into some kind of um, war of words with Douglas Crimp over this uh, group show. So, yeah. And then, and then, you know, you mentioned the, the queer nation. Um, well, it, it was a, it was a, an affiliate group of queer nation. It was called um, the hookers undivided liberation army and um they yeah they went to a, a reading of frisk in uh, san francisco in 1991 and they issued him a death threat now i say they uh it actually turned out to be just one guy and uh he hadn't even read dennis cooper's work and he condemned it on the basis of the fact that it was exploiting abused teenagers and uh in that way endorsed the, the abuse of teenagers, which is uh, an absolutely absurd um, position to take, especially from someone who hadn't even read the book, read the books, you know. Um, but yeah, so Cooper has been the kind of focus of a lot of these kind of provocations um, and, um, but has, has rarely kind of, has rarely brought them on himself in some ways. It's just that the culture is resistant to his, you know, queer punk um, position. Right. And it's <clears throat> it's a kind of transgression that that only seems gleeful and for its own sake, if you don't have much of an idea of what's actually going on. Um, like there's, as you point out, I think in the in the book, and it's one of the reasons why I think it's a, a good book. Um, there's so much more to Cooper and there's so much more to all of these to all of these subjects uh, and to all of these um you know, potentially very shocking uh, images um, or or themes with which he's working um, than just uh, sort of transgression for its own sake, or than just some kind of gleeful, uh, you know, romp to 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 provoke. I mean, he's not a troll. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, he. Um, I think he. You know, let's say in in relation to the Against Nature show, he was. Um, he was defending the idea that uh, that art could be um, could be something other than you know um, agitprop, right? Could be other than something other than propaganda for a particular cause. Um, that it had a certain kind of imaginative freedom, and that um, you know were all of the queer artists at the time to toe the line, then you know queer art as a result would be massively impoverished. Right. Absolutely, um, and you also end up with a, with a, you know art as a kind of box checking, um, in which you know everything is everything is evaluated on this awful on this awful scale of whether it's good for the gays or bad for the gays. And ironically, there's no there's no worse way to be a gay artist than 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 that. I think um, you know to be to be constantly worried about about you know well what will they ever think of us. Um, the, the one place that I want to push you a little bit further, and I want to push the conversation a little bit, a little bit further, is on this question of um, what do we do with uh, 
in the context of in the context of of gay liberation uh, and of sexual liberations, um, overly optimistic at at, at best um, understanding of or, or argumentation about um, what the sort of liberation of the sexuality of young people um, would and could achieve, right? Um, what do we do uh, with that knowledge um, then with the ways in which um, Cooper's work, I think, is to some extent or is understood by some people to some extent to be um, eroticizing um, abuse. Mm. Right. Okay. Well, I, I, okay. Let me, let me just read you Cooper's response to this, because I think this is probably um, a, a, the best point to start from, right? So, you know, people have, the, the word kind of pedophile has been thrown around where it comes to Cooper's work. Is, it, is that okay? Can I, can I read his response? Uh, please do. Um, and please also tell us where you're reading from. And if we can link to it in the show notes, we will. Sure. Yeah. So this is from a Paris Review um, a Paris Review interview with him. Um, and I, th I think you can get that on the Paris Review website. Okay, so Cooper says, it's strange to me that some people assume the older characters in my books represent my viewpoint and that the younger characters are objects to me in the same way as they are to the fictional adults. There's a reason the readers who most love my work Say they and say they relate to it tend to be young. I think that unless you come to my work with hard preconceptions and prejudices, it's obvious where my sympathies lie. The reason the objectifiers and predators and excessive aesthetes in my books don't come with judgments attached is because I want people to get as involved in the novels as possible and to make their own decisions about the content based on what happens in the novels. So I think that that for me is, is, a, is a pretty good defense, you know, just in terms of how he, um, how he understands that people come to his work with certain preconceptions and prejudices, um, like the, 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 um, the, the guy who issued the death threat, threat for instance, um, but also that his sympathies lie with the young people in his work, you know, to go right back to the top of our conversation, we, uh, you know, his, the adults in his books are, are, are contemptible, they're um, abusive, uh, at best they're, you know, indifferent. Um, and so, yeah, you know, you know, Ben, I was thinking about this the other day and, and I was wondering, like, why is it that Cooper, who represents, you know, um, some of his, his teenagers are, are abused, but they have, you know, really sophisticated emotional lives, you know, I mean, they may not be able to communicate, but they are, you know, very, uh, very real in that sense, the, the kind of the, the, their emotional uh, sophistication. And I was wondering, like, why is it that somebody like, um, uh, Hanya Yanagikara, you know, you know, Hanya, uh, you know, a little life. You oh, yeah, I call, I call it a very little life. Mm. To, to quote, to quote Dorothy Barker, it's that's not a book to be tossed aside lightly. It should be thrown violently and with great force. 
I mean, at at like eight hundred pages, it is. Uh, it's not little by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, eight hundred right? too many. Mm. But this is the thing, you know. I mean, so a little life is awarded uh, is shortlisted for the Booker Prize. It is a finalist <laughs> for the National Book Award, right? And so, uh, you know, you've read it, but for your listeners that haven't, it is a uh, uh, an extended. Um, it is, it's torture porn. It has this character at the heart of it named Jude, who is subjected to the most uh, degrading and, and vicious um, assaults on his person. Um, I mean, you know, I, we, I could, I could um, uh, tell you what I really think um, about this book, but it, it and it's it's based on no scientific research. It's based on um, some idea that the author had about about what uh, a, an abused queer person might be and how they might conduct themselves. In any case, there are various scenes in which Jude is subjected to uh, an enormous amount of abuse and violence and so on. And I'm just wondering, like, why is it that um, uh, Yanagi Hara is offered um, plaudits and praise and is mobbed at book readings. And Dennis Cooper is the guy who's called a pedophile. And I think, you know what, I, I kind of concluded that a little life doesn't reflect you. It doesn't reflect back on your experience. You just consume it you watch this poor kid suffer and die by suicide. Um, but you're never at any point like asked, like, why, why are you reading this? Like, what do you get out of this? But Cooper's work always does that, you know, and it, it always asks you what your um, personal investment is in this. And that's why people don't like him because they're kind of um, held to account for their, um, their, 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 their glee, gleeful enjoyment of, of sadistic violence. And um, yeah, so I hope that answers your question. It does, um, it does. And I'm also always happy to find critical perspectives on that bewilderingly praised book. Um, I'll also just add briefly that I do know people who, uh, people who I respect, people whose writing I love, who loved that book. So um, I don't, I don't want to say that anybody who liked it has terrible taste, but I found it to be actually unreadable. Uh, and I found the, the praise, um, I think the praise that was, that was lavished on it was unusually embarrassing for everyone involved. Um, people can probably far too easily um, you know, see a picture of Dennis Cooper um, or, or know the sort of basics of the biography and then just imagine him into the role of all of these older characters um, as opposed to thinking more critically about what the work actually is doing and, and where it is placing us in relationship to what it's describing. Um, and I also want to make it clear that I raised these questions not because I think the work does the nasty things that I say that it does, but because that is something that a lot of people uh, kind of have in their heads about it. Um, and, and, I, and I wanted to address it. Um, I wanted to address it here. Absolutely, um, yeah. I mean, I think it's testament, um, it's testament to the, to, the, to the power of his imagination, I think, and, and, and his singular um, vision that he, he is uh, so, so, so readily uh, identifiable, but unfortunately, um, that 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 the image of him is rather twisted. 
So what is Cooper up to now? Um, is he still an active artist? What, what kinds of things are, what kind of things uh, is he and has he been making? I know he's, he has turned to films. I saw last week in, in, in preparation for the show, but also I wanted to see it for a while, a kind of um, astonishing um, and very deadpan and very terrifying for being so deadpan a film about um, the death-obsessed French teenagers called Permanent Greenlight that he made in collaboration with Zach Farley. But um, what else is kind of going on with Cooper now, and, and where can people find him? Well, yeah, his yeah his, his his he seems to be have always been on the kind of cutting edge of of things, and he's so absorb he he absorbs influence in such a um, a, a ready way. Um, you know, he was uh, he's. He, in addition to film, he's also um, created uh, a few GIF novels, uh, so or GIF novels, um, uh, which are these a uh, very interesting, very strange um, sensation-based work. So you know, GIFs are kind of the the they're kind of the vernacular of the internet, right? You know, the way that we respond to things, the way that we react, these react reaction. GIFs are, are, are a kind of a shorthand for, for many things. And he, he, he figured out that you could kind of put them in different sequences and create a kind of a, a sensation from one GIF to the next. And um, so they're, they're, they're really, um, they're, they're really interesting. I was still kind of get, trying to get to grips with them when I was, um, when I was finishing the book. Um, but I think there's a huge, a huge amount more work to be done on those um, because they really do kind of, um, you know, bisect the line between um, uh, the, his previous novel writing and his turn to, to filmmaking. So as you mentioned, he, he also, uh, his first feature film uh, that he directed with um, his collaborator, Zach Farley, was called Like Cattle Towards Glow, uh, which came out in 2015. Um, and then Permanent Green Light, which, um, yeah, is, is about a teen who, he doesn't want to die, he just wants to, to disappear. Like he wants to explode, but he doesn't understand. I mean, no, he, he understands what he wants to do very, very, um, very well, but, um, yeah, I, I think I'll leave it to your listeners to 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 track that down. Um, he's also got a book coming out, so he hasn't finished with writing. Um, he his 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 most recent novel is going to come out at the end of this year. It's called I Wished, um, and it's um, it's it's an incredible personal. It's it's one of the most personal books that he's he's ever written. I think it's a really powerful piece of work, and and. Um, I'm sure it will be a landmark um, event, its publication, which is, yeah, as I say, it's in late, late uh, 21. It's also, we, we shouldn't, uh, we shouldn't uh, hesitate to mention his extraordinary blog, which uh, was taken down by Google um, for a while in a kind of big, uh, one of these, one of the, actually a really sort of prophetic scandal um, about um, that, 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 that foretold a lot of the, conversations that we're having now about the power that a limited number of platforms have over online expression. His blog to me is always a, a path, a portal back into an internet that was much more full of, uh, of uh, creative possibility and strange kind of subcultural uh, yearnings. And, and I'll link to it uh, in the show notes. It's not the easiest thing in the world to navigate, but um, certainly a, a wonderful resource and something that I find myself reading a lot. 
so we always have the same last question on the show, which is, you know, Dennis Cooper, bad gay or not bad gay? And I'm going to ask you that question, but I want to add a little corollary to it because it sounds like you're uh, familiar enough with him uh, to be at least be uh, familiar with upcoming and, and unpublished manuscripts. So A, bad gay or not bad gay? And B, how would he answer that question? <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, okay, I, I would say that Dennis Cooper is a bad gay. Um, I, 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 and I think that he would probably also say that he's a bad gay. Um, yeah, I mean, because I think, you know, going back to some of the things that we've talked about on, on, on the show, um, he, has, he has a real aversion to um, what a kind of homogenous view of, of gay identity would be. And he doesn't kind of position himself anywhere near it. But um, I think, you know what, I think he would, he would put himself um, in the kind of tradition of, of bad gays that you guys have been exploring over the course of, 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 of your many, of your many series at by now, um, that very um, heterogeneous um, uh, tradition of, 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 of the gay that you guys are exploring. Yeah, and the, and the, the, the sort of self-consciously bad, the bad gay as the opposition to the good gay as opposed to, you know, um, someone like Roy Cohn, who's, you know, a, a great doer of evil in the world, but instead somebody who's who's interested in disrupting the ideas of, of what a good gay can or, or should be. Um, so Dermot, if, if people want to um, find your book, it's called Wrong, a critical biography of, of Dennis Cooper. And if they want to uh, learn more about you and your work or, or follow you, what's the way that they can do that? Yeah, you, you can um, head to my website, which is dermothester.com. Um, I'm also on Twitter at D.E. Hester. Great. Well, uh, thank you so much again for, for joining us for this conversation. Um, you can follow me at Ben Writes Things. You can follow the show at Bad Gaze Pod. And you can visit our website at badgazepod.com to find t-shirts and an episode archive uh, and also a link to our Patreon, which is how the, uh, we are able to make our full seasons and also our uh, special guest episodes like this one. So until the next time that we're back, uh, stay safe and stay healthy. Bye. Bad. Bad, 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 bad,